This episode has been made possible by our friends at TaskHusky. TaskHusky.com provides theme tweaks and small development for Shopify stores. So you know those annoying small tasks that you can't do yourself but are really too small for most traditional Shopify experts? They can help you with those. They're available 24-7, have no minimums or maximums, and right now you can get your first task done for only $59 by taking $10 off with coupon code UNOFFICIAL10 when ordering from TaskHusky.com. That's TaskHusky.com. Write it down or save it in your phone. Hello and welcome back to the unofficial Shopify podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Elster. All right, enough with the goofy radio voice. Um, so I advocate all the time for people to sell private label products, and that gives you your own competitive advantage. I mean, ideally, you just want to be not selling someone else's product. And people do private label where they have their own, they stick their brand name on something or they take an existing product and have it made, you know, tweaked slightly different or bundled. That's the the easy way out. The real, you know, the... Uh, the grand prize of of doing a private label product is to actually design and manufacture your own product. And, you know, the, the biggest stumbling block there is twofold. One, it's expensive, but really, you know, we could take the risk out of that with Kickstarter, with pre-orders. You know, we've seen lots of really cool, successful projects on Kickstarter. And that also, I love Kickstarter because then you've, you're validating your idea on Kickstarter. You're taking all the risk out of it. Um, you're mitigating the expense. And you're building your audience right there. You get everybody's emails. Um, so yes, I want, you know, tons of people have great ideas. But then what do you do with them? I've got great ideas for stuff. I don't know how to get them made. Because the catch with Kickstarter now is, you know, to make sure more products make it to market, you have to have a prototype. You can't just put up a sketch or even a render and say, you know, no matter how good or thought out and say, oh, yeah, hey, here's the thing we, we want to make. You have to have a physical uh, prototype that you could show. And I have no idea how to do that. You know, in truth, honestly, and as the host, I often play the layperson on the show. Um, in this case, I actually am the layperson. I really don't know. Um, so joining me today from Ket's Design Farm in Anaheim, California, is Dorian Ferrari. Dorian, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Cool. And Dorian, what do you do? So um, primarily, I, I help inventors and small businesses bring product concepts to life, um, getting them ready for prototype production. Uh, doing small batch and stuff like that. Cool. So that's exactly what we want to do is I have an idea. I want to bring it to life. How does that process look? How does it work? So we know like, well, what, what are some of the limitations here? Like where, if I just come to you, I say, here, I got an idea. Here's what I want to do. What happens next? So what most people do is they've got a concept of what they want, either something that they scratch on the back of a napkin or possibly someone's made a nice render for them. Um, or it could just be a kind of a rough idea of, I want to make a widget that does this. Um, so those are the kind of people that come to me. And the first thing that we do is we look at what the product is and what the viability, how far along it's been thought out to see if it's actually something that can be produced um, within a reasonable cost frame. You know, so I kind of try to help guide the you know my clients into the point of, we're not just going to make a widget for you. We're going to actually ensure that it's something that you can bring to market. And how do you do that? What's that process look like? Um, so it, it, it's partially from experience. So, you know, I've been in the toy business uh, before this for 20 years, consumer products for 25. And doing product development over those years, you kind of get an idea of what's required for mass manufacturing, um, what kind of things you have to look for, um, and then kind of what kind of components will need to go into depending on what the project is. So 
what I do is I, I take a, an evaluation with the client of, okay, I want to do this. I want it to be in this form factor with this kind of styling. And pretty quickly you can look at, it's like, okay, well, these are your, your limitations. You know, that's going to require perhaps a $30 motor in a part that you want to sell for $10 um, because uh, you're trying to fit it into a certain form factor. So what are um, some, how could someone help ensure their own success? What are some questions I could ask myself before I approach uh, a designer? Um, and actually, what would, what's your job title? Uh, owner. <laughs> if so, I'm looking for someone like you, what would I type in? Um, mechanical designer. So mechanical either designer. you're looking for a product designer or a mechanical designer, someone who has experience that does not just the aesthetic pretty renderings, because um, you can get that pretty easily by anyone who works on you know myriad of CAD programs. Um, but you need someone who actually understands how to create a developed de product, someone who can take that and make mold-ready parts, uh, make it sure that they can be mass-manufactured and not just prototype. Because while prototypes are an essential part of getting your product out there, um, you need to make sure that you can make that transition from a prototype into mass manufacturing. I'm taking a note here. Okay, so if I want to ensure my success when hiring a product designer, what should I, what is, what is your ideal client come to you with? Um, my ideal client comes to me with kind of a rough idea, but not a finished concept. So a lot of times people that have approached me and said, this is exactly what I want. And I want it to look like this. And I want it to do all these cool functional things. And it's like something out of uh, back to the future or star Trek or something that that's just obvious over the top for fitting that much functionality into a certain form factor. So people that have, they come to me that are, this is kind of what I want to do, and this is what the goal is, and I want you to design the form factor and stuff, but it has to be within kind of an XYZ limitation. That gives me a much more flexibility to say, okay, I can take this, this is, I can lay out a mechanism for you. I do a lot of mechanized type stuff, or in the case of phone cases, uh, electronics housings, they'll come to me and they have the start. This is the package that we need to design around. And then allow me to actually develop something that's aesthetically pleasing, mechanically functional, and will do what they need to do. Versus, I know exactly what I want. I don't. I don't work well with clients who who feel that they know more than their designer. So it's actually ideal if I have if I come to you and say like, here's a rough idea of what I want. Here's my a, essentially a rough sketch, rough idea. Um, you know, here's some some notes and limitations. And then work together collaboratively from there to come up with the product, as opposed to like I drop here's a 3D render, here's a list of features, make it happen. Yeah, um, if if the the inventor is not part of the design process at all, then what happens is a lot of times you get a disconnect. So I can work in a vacuum. Um, I some of my clients are toy companies, and they're very similar to that. It's like I have a rough idea, here's a sketch, go make it happen. And then when they get it, it's like, well, this is not what I expected, even though and it matches their, their sketch. Um, so you really need to kind of be collaborative and communicative between the client and designer so that everybody's always on the same page. It just makes sure that the design process and that you get a good product out of it. That makes sense. Okay. I like that. And that's, a, you know, really it's, it's less effort up front before hiring a designer. What, um, so I go from... Rough idea. I bring you a rough idea. I hire. Mm -hmm. I've got my idea. I sketch it out. I hire a product designer. I give them the product designer. We work collaboratively to come up with a a finished 
prototype design, what's the next step here? Yeah, so that that's your your main goal. The, usually, what I do is a, what they call a, like a rough prototype. So there's different types of printing technologies out there that you can do for prototypes. There's things like breadboards, which means just works like, and that may be bolted together with you know parts that you find at a hobby store, for instance, to your first 3D printed set of parts that gives you form, fit, and function, but may not be perfect aesthetics because you're trying to save costs at the early stages. And then when you're ready to do like a prototype for like a Kickstarter campaign, then you probably want to go to something like a Shapeways or a 3D Systems, uh, more professional bureau where they've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment that can produce really, really clean and tight prototype uh, plastic parts for you. And then from that, you can fit in your electronics. So if there are electronics, you may need to have prototype boards made. Um, you need to do some wiring. You know, So a designer like me will do, be able to do mechanical prototypes and to some degree light uh, electrical. But if you, you may need like an electrical engineer is involved as well if you're going to have circuits um, and PC boards and logic involved. You know, might need a programmer. So... The designer will also work with the client to say, okay, these are the kind of resources that you're also going to have to get involved with this kind of a project. So what's, um, what am I looking at? And this is obviously a, a really broad range here, but go broad numbers. What am I looking at for costs and timeline? So most of my projects, you know, so the way I bid is per project. And if you're looking at a relatively simple electronics closure, you know, you're probably in the... Fifteen hundred to three thousand dollar design range um, that would get you full mold ready parts, um, like three or four iterations depending on what you need to do, and the communication that you'll do with the molding company. If it's a much larger design, like a full electromechanical uh, system, um, you may be looking at approximately five thousand, you know, like three to five thousand dollars a week um, design fees. So it's not an inexpensive thing, but what that does is it guarantees you that, you know, if you have a good designer, that when you're done, you can hand it off to a manufacturer and that person will also work with your manufacturer to ensure any mold changes that their particular process has is taken care of. Okay. So let's say as an example, um, let's say I want to do, I say I've got a great idea. I want to do a, a new phone case. So we're doing something, you know, it's, very simple. We've got no, really no moving parts here, no electronics parts. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, beginning to, if I want to just get to the, let's get a proto, a good looking prototype on Kickstarter, what should I budget for that? So on a phone case, if it's a static, a uh, single piece snap on, you're looking about between five and 700 for the design fee and maybe up to 200 for your final print model. That's actually way less than I thought it would be. I mean, yeah. like if I budgeted a thousand dollars and I have a sketch of a phone case idea that gets me to uh, prototype and um, and what I get like my my design stuff that I could pass off to a a manufacturer for a uh, mass market run. Yeah, absolutely. So a good example is I did uh, for a company that is called Tripcam, a their LG. Um, tablet case that's to set up something like the Chili's point of service on the table that they do, but on the back of an Uber car. Okay. And that was a simple plastic design case that would snap in 
and there was like three iterations that we went in and that was that cost because it's a larger case and they had multiple iterations on it and my fee was 1200 and the actual prototypes cost them 50 bucks a piece hmm. through shapeways it's okay so i've heard you say shapeways multiple times i don't know what it is what is shapeways shapeways is it's kind of like the uber of 3d printing um so if you go back say five to seven years the only way to get 3d printing out was through professional service bureaus and they're expensive they're usually local um and it you, you have to develop that relationship with them shapeways came out with creating a 3d printing marketplace really so you can actually put up your designs on there and sell them um, to people or you can use it as a service. They started out using um, a technology called SLS, which is uh, Centrine. It uses a nylon-based stuff, and it's a nice, durable part, and they do colors, but now they've expanded to doing metals, uh, polyjet-type printing, and a number of other processes. But you just upload your model, say, make me one based on the price that it gives you, and they'll ship it to you. Very cool. How long does that take? Um, for their basic plastics, it's a, they've got it shortened down to about a turnaround of about four days. Oh, my gosh. And then probably, depending on where you are in the country, they'll, they'll need to ship it. Their more exotic materials is like 10-day turnaround time. What are so, Okay, so what are, the, what are the materials I can have made out of 3D, with 3D printing? Well, so, so that's quite a range. Um, 3D printing allows you just to work with standard thermoplastics like ABS, nylon, polycarbonate, polypropylene. Um, you have, in the polyjet world, you have what are called simulated materials so that they will simulate the real materials, but they're, they're based on a photoresin. Hmm. Um, you have nylons, uh, which are done with the like SLS materials. So you can do direct metal sintering. Uh, which is actually made with everything from aluminum to tungsten to high-end stainless steel, titanium, you know, pretty much sky's the limit. Um, in fact, a lot of the the really groundbreaking technology that's been going on with metal sintering is doing things like custom implants. So if you get a knee, knee replacement nowadays, there's chances are they're going to be scanning the inside of your knee joint and making an implant that fits exactly to your geometry. Very cool. And then on Shapeways, you can even have things like ceramic, gold, silver, um, and that's done through a, uh, the ceramic's done with a printing technology, the gold is done with a lost wax uh, investment cap. So they print a wax part, and then they'll cast you a gold, your gold jewelry. Oh, okay. Wow. There's lots of, so what are the limitations of 3D printing? Um, 3D, the basic limitation is mass production. Um, it's more expensive to make a 3D print than an injection molded part, for instance, and it's on a, quite an order of magnitude. However, 3D printing can do things that no mass production really has the capability to. You can create undercuts, internal voids, you know, you can do integrated assemblies, uh, meaning that you've got multiple parts printed in one shot and it's all embedded. Um, some of the custom orthotics that's being done, like leg braces, the entire hinging system is printed um, in one pass hmm. so that there's no way that your bearings or gears or whatever that's going on to those can come apart. Oh, interesting. And what you like, uh, what you cut them apart or how does this work? No. So the way that those are done with a metal centering process and the way that that works is that 
it's spraying layer by layer in a bed of metal powder. And the laser solidifies that metal very selectively. And so when you're done, you just shake, shake the powder off of your part and you now have a finished part. So if you have gears and you've got a clearance between the gears, your gears are now completely functional. Very cool. I had no idea. So in some ways, 3D printing actually is has is better. You oh, just absolutely. Can't do it in a, everything has to be like one-off parts. You can't do it as you know a mass production thing. No, but you can do mass customization. So Disneyland uh, or Disney World, I think it is, has a system in place where you can have your daughter put into a photo booth. They scan your face, and ten days later, they send you a custom full color 3d printed doll of Cinderella or one of their characters with your daughter's head in it. Hmm. And that's done using a, a, a color powder centering process uh, that was originally formed by a company called Z core. That's now owned by 3d systems, but those are a very quick type of printing. And because it uses basically like a cornstarch based powder and ink, it's a relatively inexpensive material. So, right, so let me stop you there. Okay. Well, let's say, all right. So I've, let's say, you know, I've got, I go from idea to a higher product designer. I get my, uh, my product designed. I get my prototype made. I put it up on Kickstarter. I get backed, uh, fingers crossed. How do I transition to manufacturing? You know, now I've got, you know, yes. say I've got a hundred thousand so, dollars, half a million dollars, whatever, and kick people's Kickstarter money. And I have to deliver. What do I do next? And that's where a lot of people stumble because when you go to, to mass manufacturing, a lot of times the design is not optimized for either injection mold or thermoforming or, you know, other possible options that you may be taking uh, your product for, depending on what you're doing. Um, what happens is, like I say, 3D printing can print all sorts of things that aren't possible in mass manufacturing. So you have to account for things like draft angles, which is when you, on an injection mold, parts need to be have a an angle on the sidewalls so that it ejects from the mold. Um, there are tolerances that have to be calculated, what's called a tolerance stack analysis, uh, so that when you give your parts now and your files to a company to injection mold, you're saying hold it within a certain tolerance, like five thousandths of an inch or a quarter millimeter. And if they don't, you know, if, if they're all one direction, you may end up with your parts coming back and not fitting. Um, so that's one of those areas where you can run into problems. And the other thing is just how things scale. Because injection molding is not a 100% repeatable exact science, just like 3D printing isn't, you may have areas that require um, molds to come back and then, and then you look at them, assemble them, and you may need to make adjustments. So, in fact, most people I tell don't ever expect your what they call first shots, which is the first parts out of the mold, to be perfect. So um, what is, when we say, all right, so we have to. So let's say I'm just I've got my I've got my iPhone case that I'm making. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so we they make um, you know they make a, a metal cast and then the the injection mold they squirt you know hot plastic or rubber whatever it is mm -hmm. into it and then out comes my part. Right. And that's the, the expensive part is is the upfront expensive cost is getting that mold made, correct? Yeah, is the tooling because tooling is done with a, a very hard tool steel and it needs to be CNC machined or a process called EDM to create the cavities. 
and then a mold design has to be done around it. So something like a phone case, for instance, she may be able to do what's called an insert mold, which means that their mold design, which is cooling lines, sprues, ejectors, all that stuff may be standardized. And then they just create the actual insert block for you of your mold part. Okay. And, and that's, your, that's your most economical way to go for a mold. For a full custom mold, they need to design the cooling lines to make sure the plastic cools properly at the right, right temperature. You have to have sprues and runners for flow. Um, there's, there's a lot that goes into a mold. It's actually a very complicated um, part, and that's why they're so expensive. Um, so, but for a phone case, yeah, you're tell me looking, what it's going to cost me. Um, if you go into a China manufacturer, a phone case would probably be around three to 7,000. For just the tooling? For just the tooling. And then you're looking probably at about 30 to 60 cents per part, depending on which material you go out of. And what, uh, like, how does quality control work? How many pieces should I expect to throw out? <laughs> so the best way to ensure that you're going to have good quality is what is you send them an inspection drawing. Uh, when you go to a mold manufacturer, they will typically send you what's called a DFM or design for manufacturing. And what that is, is it's going to have their engineers take your part, put it into a mold flow analysis, do the mold design, and they'll come back and say, hey, these are going to be problem areas. These may cause sink marks, which are defects in the surface. And you'll do a little back and forth to try to optimize the design for their molding process. Once you've done that, on your first shots, you'll get a sampling of between 10 and 20 samples, and you'll take you'll verify it now. And so you, for the, that first, that run of 10 to 20 samples I've paid for, I've already paid, you know, many thousands for the yeah. tooling. That's usually included in your tooling cost. Okay. And then if I have to, you know, I, I need a second revision. I pay again for the the tooling, the same price. No. So, okay. It, so this was the full going, right. creating. So your tooling cost, what happens is at, if, if you come back in your first samples and you say, I need to make this change if it's your fault or the designer's fault, then you're going to pay for a tooling change. But it's, you know, maybe on a, something like a phone case, a few hundred dollars. Um, it depends, again, on if they're going to add steel or subtract steel. So, oh, you good know, point. Yeah, <laughs> it's much harder to add steel right. to, to a tool. So what most tooling manufacturers do just by nature is they make things what are called steel safe. And that means that if there's a question of something's going to be under or oversized, they'll, they'll go to the direction that means that they can remove material in order to correct the situation. And then if it's their fault of something that they did in the tooling, then they will pay for the changes. One of the, the most common issues I see both like clients, I've seen clients go through this. I've seen um, uh, Kickstarters that I've back go through this. Is delays. I mean, I don't think there's ever been a Kickstarter that gets delivered on time. Why do you think that is? What's going on there? And it's a, it seems to well, always be at once you get to the mass manufacturing process. There's a number of reasons, um, especially if you're using China. China is, you know, especially working in the toy industry, I've dealt with them quite a bit. They will say yes to anything. Um, so they may say, yes, I can, I can make your mold in three weeks. And in reality, it's probably going to be more like five. Um, so a lot of times you'll see China manufacturers will overpromise, or they will promise on something like, say, if your design needs a battery, 
uh, you'll go to, a, there's lots of battery manufacturers there. If you're using a custom battery, they'll say, oh yeah, we can have that made, no problem. But then you don't have um, import approval because it's a custom battery. Things like electronics are oftentimes, you know, problematic because they'll do the board wrong or it'll take longer. You know, almost everything in China ends up going through subcontractors if there's multiple components. Now, something like a phone case, that's a pretty low risk. You're going to have a part manufactured and molded, but your delay usually comes from they'll send you a sample and you'll look at it and it's like, well, no, this isn't right because this should have been longer or wider or it doesn't fit the phone. You know, a number of reasons like that. A lot of people don't take into account that nothing ever goes right the first time. Even on something as simple as a phone case, you you almost always are going to have revisions. Oh, and, yeah, and that's – I've seen it. The two yeah. things I've seen happen with, um, with my clients or with Kickstarters I've backed is – uh, like often, more often than not, the delay is literally the manufacturer just sends you an email and says, "Oh, well, we had a there, another client with a bigger order needed something faster, so we're we're going to run theirs ahead of yours." And that Absolutely. like do, doesn't bother them. And nine times out of ten, that happens. I have, and at this point, I've literally never seen like if a manufacturer delays something by a month, that's to be expected. Um, at least you know based on my limited experience. Or yeah, you know they cut, you know they get the full the first samples back and they're like oh no and they have to go back and I think that's often where um, you know these kickstarters go like burn through their budgets is because yeah. the, the tooling gets so unbelievably expensive very quickly when you're making revisions. Oh yeah, there's a large project that I'm on that was a Kickstarter. I think their original funding goal was like fifty grand. They made sixty five, I believe. But their tooling costs are approximately seventy-five thousand just for the injected molded parts. Oh my god! Um, so they they didn't get good quotes up front, um, and they didn't line up their suppliers up front. So you know that's your other problem. Is a lot of times you get that prototype and and you're using like off-the-shelf components uh, through McMaster Car or something like that, and it's like okay, I have no idea what the cost is, but it should be about this. And then they start going out and actually sourcing, you know, their vendors, and they realize, oh, this is going to be a lot more than I expected. Um, so, you know, a lot of the Kickstarters that I've supported, both from funding and from the design side, you know, the first thing I try to do is talk to the clients if I'm doing on the design side that always expect delays and make sure that you put that into your into your forecast. Don't assume that. The numbers that the vendors are going to tell you are going to be right. I don't think they ever are. <laughs> no, they aren't. It's just it's the nature of manufacturing. Yeah. Even in the toy business and where you've got your own factories, there's always times of where there's problems and there's delays. You know, it's just constant. Yeah, I would plan on it. All right. So I think we've covered it. We you've said it all. We've gone through the whole that whole process from I have an idea at dinner and I sketched it down to I'm now manufacturing a product and selling it um, ideally via Shopify. Mm -hmm. This is, this has been enlightening. I kind of like, I think I, you know, through, um, <laughs> uh, through, through osmosis, through secondary contact and experience, I think I, I knew each of these things individually, but like having it laid out um, and seeing, you know, the timeline and hearing it from an expert always um, is helpful. So what's, you know, if, Someone is, is thinking about 
you know, they've got an idea in the back of their head. They'd love to see it come to life. What's, what's the next step they should take? What's one thing they could do to ensure their success? So the first thing I, you know, to do is to get a consultation with a good designer, someone who knows what they're doing. Um, I offer that to clients as kind of a, just a first off contact to see if it's a good fit. But, you know, be, before you go into putting something up on Kickstarter or knowing where you're going to go, talk to someone that's in the industry and understands the entire production process, not just a product designer out of something like an Otis, which is a design school. Because people who can design a product to make it look pretty, but have never been into the manufacturing side of the world or never done something through production, will not be able to be as helpful to you in ensuring that you've got a product success as someone who has experience all the way through the production chain. Oh, I know that pain. I can always tell um, in the web design world, we can always tell when you have a, a print designer making a, a web design <laughs> because they don't have development experience. So like yes. they'll design something that's amazing, but you're like, that's, you, you just know right away. It's like, all right, they don't have the experience. Cause like, this isn't going to work well. This is going to break on mobile. And yeah. So now that, that makes perfect sense to me is you have to have that, you know, you have to have the experience of the next stage of the thing you're, you're designing for, uh, Dorian, where could people go to learn more about you? So my website is, uh, catsdesignfarm.com with a Z. And I'll link with, to it in the show. With notes. a Z, yeah, of course. Um, and then also, you know, kind of from the prototype perspective, I've got a free 3D printing course that kind of goes over um, a very high-level view of the different technologies and the, the cost and how to make a decision. Well, and so that's yeah, it. I mean, even if, like, if you're not doing this yourself, you still need to know it. Absolutely. You, you know, you need to understand what your options are. So even if you're just going to send it out to someone and have them do it, if you've got that education on what you're going to do, uh, and what process they may be using, then you can add more intelligent questions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it helps to it helps to understand it, so you can have uh, you could converse on the same level with them, and they'll appreciate you know that they're talking to not a layperson. Um, it's helpful for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Dorian, thank you for joining us. This has been very helpful. Thank you so much. To our listeners, however, this audio made it into your ears. You could find out more about it at unofficialshopfivepodcast.com or subscribe in iTunes. I implore you, leave a review while you're there. Or, if you'd like to be notified whenever a new episode goes live, you can sign up for my newsletter at kurtelster.com, and I'll shoot you an email whenever we post a new episode. Thanks, everybody, and we'll be back next week. Our program was produced today by Paul Rita. The unofficial Shopify podcast is distributed by EtherCycle LLC. We'll be back next week with more value bombs for Shopify store owners. If you're looking for more high-quality and actionable advice on learning the business of e-commerce, join thousands of other Shopify store owners on our totally free newsletter at eCommerce Bootcamp. That's eCommerce-Bootcamp.com.